This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. All right, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 through 14 is where we're at today. I want to just reiterate something. As I approach texts like this, I feel a, a huge weight as a pastor to both articulate the truths of Scripture with the heart in which it needs to be communicated. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes, because of the culture that we're in and the way that we view things, if anything seems confrontive, we think there's no way something can make me hurt uh, and confront something in me and be loving at the same time, right? This is going to confront things in us, and it's going to cause us to feel the tension of that in many ways. But I, I want to just affirm in you that my heart in this and our hearts in this is, is as much as there's a huge log in my own eye that I want to deal with in my own heart so that I could see clearly to help my brothers and sisters remove the speck in yours. So I, I'm taking the, a, a page from the Sermon on the Mount and saying this. Just because I'm bringing this to you doesn't mean I don't have a huge log in my own eye that I have to deal with on these things. And I hope you hear that. I'm with you in this. As we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, one thing has become clear. The world and its politic and the way we live in this world and the things of this world and the ways governments and structures and families and communities function are way different or should be way different than the way that we as the people of God um, should live and function. And I feel that right now more than ever because it doesn't matter what political party I think, I, I, I believe, it shouldn't matter what political party we've identified with we should have a hard time finding home in this world right now. Meaning we shouldn't have a place to lay our heads in either political party. Because of the politic of the kingdom, if you've really been listening as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, pushes against both of the right, the left, and it, and, it, and it presses against those realities and it affirms certain things and then it completely rejects others. What we've seen as we've walked through chapter 5 is that God has this value on the poor, the meek, on the, those who are for reconciliation and peacemaking. And that that kingdom, the kingdom of God, is a family. That changes the way we relate with one another. This is not just about rules and laws and following politic. This is about being a part of a family where the king is our father. And that father doesn't just have an agenda for us. That father loves us. And is creating a family. And chapter 6 talks about how we should relate to him as father. Chapter 6 mentions father more times than any other chapter in scripture. I mean, there's so many references to God as father in that. 
because of how much he wants us to see even how we pray, how we talk to God, how we relate with him, how we relate with others is defined by us seeing him as father. And then chapter 7 does something that every family that's healthy and walking in this way does. It, It doesn't just care about our relationship with him as father, but a father cares about not just our personal relationship with him, but cares about our interpersonal relationships as the family of God with one another. So this then says, if we have this relationship with the Father, this is the kind of relationship we're going to have with one another. And here's why the Sermon on the Mount really pushes against our, our lives. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, we have all developed a measuring stick of our spirituality. We've all developed our own measuring sticks on how do we know that our relationship with God is good. And there's common measuring sticks that we like to come up with. And there's a dangerous one that I've seen start to seep into, uh, especially the Western church. And here is the measuring stick many of us have settled in on when it comes to how we know where our relationship with God is. And what we have done is we've taken the idea of theology, meaning the study of God, and we've made it theological or theology, meaning that we should study God. And so because theology and people who are good at theology has become in many ways, an idolatry to us, what we have made our relationship with God is primarily academic. Meaning, you should study about God, you should study theology, and then even if you're not doing that on a higher level of academia, what you do end up doing is pushing it down to the lower levels where many of us measure our relationship with God based upon how well we do our homework, namely reading His Scriptures. Meaning, you talk to somebody go, hey, how are you doing in your relationship with the Lord? And they immediately go, you know, I'm doing pretty good except... You know, I just haven't been getting into the Word very much. Meaning the measuring stick of how close I am to God is based upon how much I've been doing my homework. And we've taken Scripture and we've made it into something academic versus relational. Now, I love God's Word and encourage all of you to read it deeply but not so that you can grow in knowledge and get yourself puffed up, but so that you can grow in relationship of knowing the God of the Bible. See, what we have done is made knowledge about understanding versus knowing. Versus having his very heart. And what we've done with our relationship with God is we've moved it out of intimacy and closeness and moved it into a chore. We've moved it out of affection and we've moved it into discipline. We have to do this or we're not going to be close to God. We've made, hear me on this, we've made the measuring stick a lot smaller than it should be. We've made it something attainable. 
understanding. So what happens in that is the people who are good with their minds and think deeply and articulate well, they're the super Christians. They're the ones everybody looks up to and wants to be like. So we've made the theologians the ones who are educated and and smart. They're the leaders. They're the ones who should be in that place. Interesting enough, the ones that Jesus chose as the disciples, the, in Acts it says that when they saw their disciples, here's what they said. They're the least educated. They're not smart. But you could tell they had been with Jesus. That's a different kind of knowing. This knowing is not about my ascension of knowledge. It's They've been around him. They know him. They're close to him. There's a relationship. And the reality is we've taken the measuring stick of our spirituality to a Western educational model, meaning go to school, get your education, and you're going to be smart and you're better than everybody else, then you'll get good jobs until you get out of college and realize education, they want experience too, right? They actually want you to know something outside of a classroom. Then you're like, I can't get a job and I got this degree. Well, good job. Now pay tens of thousands of dollars back for no job. Right? And we've done that in our relationship. Many people can spend time giving you very clear, articulate Bible studies on patience and have zero patience at all. Many people have very clear Bible studies on the doctrines of grace. Let me give you all the doctrines of grace and display zero grace. Why? Because we have lowered the bar. What if the training ground, the classroom of the kingdom was not book learning? What if it was life on life discipleship where when God wants to teach you about patience, He doesn't send you a new book. He makes you wait. What if you learned more about patience by having to be patient? And what if when you saw someone who was having to be patient, you didn't just send them a book, but you understood where they were at because you'd been there? And what if Instead of us giving real articulate displays of the doctrines of grace, we were known as a people that were gracious because when God wanted to teach us about grace, He put people in our lives that would uh, offend us, hate us, test it, What if we learned more about forgiveness by having to forgive someone than doing a Bible study on it? 
And what if when we ran to Scripture to hear and see how Christ had forgiven us, it was to feast on something that was rich and pure to empower us to do it rather than to puff us up? What if all of these things in the Sermon on the Mount were not just about us understanding them? But what if a theologian and the definition of a theologian changed to what John Frame says theology is? John Frame says theology is the application of God's Word to all areas of life, and I agree with John Frame. I think theologians should be redefined by not just somebody who's academic and smart and can talk well, but somebody who has learned to take God's word and to apply it to every area of life. I think we would see new theologians. Why? Why have we taken our relationship with God and make it academic? Why have we taken our, our views of Scripture and made it more about understanding than application? Because there's a massive problem in the world. There's a massive problem in this room. There's a massive problem in us. There's a massive problem in me. And that problem is sin. And sin is rooted in, all sin is rooted in pride. Pride is the problem. Pride is the problem. And pride, as you remember when Pastor Tyler was here and we were going through Matthew chapter 6 and he talked about how, how sin is a radical turning in towards yourself. It's a turning in towards me. It's in a reorientation to where everything is about me and everything is about my edification and everything is about my, me build, build up and everything's about my prosperity and everything's about me. Isn't it interesting that all of our doctrines and even the way we read Scripture become that? That we go to Scripture to find something that will edify us. That we look at the doctrines of justification and we think everything in Scripture is about personal justification rather than a deeper and broader understanding of what justification really is. What if we understood these things and realized that we have so turned into ourselves That we are not on the pathway of life by digging more and more into ourselves. And we are not on the pathway to life by trying to understand ourselves more deeply and to try to get and, and to, to look at ourselves more. It is pride that turns us into ourselves. And we live in a world where pride is not just something that is there, but it's something that is taught as a virtue. We teach others, and we teach our children, and we teach those around us, and our school systems, and everything around us is teaching us, focus on you. Focus on yourself. Do what's good for number one. Look out for yourself and only do what is best for you. Pride is a huge problem. I'll give this illustration, not to point out pride in my children, uh, but just to, to heighten our view of this. I, I, I know I got 
huge pride in me, but the, my kids fight over, I don't even know how to explain it, uh, dumb stuff, <laughs> just dumb stuff. Like, honestly, there's many times that I've sat there and listened to them fight over things and just kind of got jealous a little bit. Like, I wish that my biggest problem in the world was what cookie I get to eat right now. <laughs> right? Like, I, could wish, I wish that I was so confident in my needs that I could just haul off and hit somebody because they don't give me the cookie I want. Do you get what I'm saying? Like last night, I'll, I'll give you last night's example, okay? Dad wants to bless. I want to give. I'm a giver, you know? So what do I do? I go buy ice cream and I give a small, meaningless task. Like, pick one thing of ice cream that you all can enjoy. That simple command of picking ice cream turns into an all-out world war <laughs> over who's going to get what kind of ice cream. One wants this kind, and another one wants this one, and everybody, and nobody's backing down. <laughs> Tears, fights, screaming, name-calling. What kind of Christian could want that kind of ice cream, right? Right? That was a political joke. Um, and I'm sitting there and going, so this is what I said. You want this ice cream, you want this ice cream, you want it. You know what your dad wants? He wants you all to love each other. That's what he wants. He wants for you all to, to care enough for each other where you, you get along. That's what he wants. That's, that's the, the heart of why I even gave you the ice cream. And they're all so cute in their little pride, you know? It's hard for me to, to get angry because I, I look and I, I just want to grab them by the chubby little cheeks, right? And just say, oh, you have such cute pride. That all you care about is ice cream when it's way more life-giving to have love for each other. And the reality of the kinds of things that are destroying our world, that are destroying our lives, that's the root of all kinds of evil, is the root of all kinds of sin, is the root of all disobedience, all injustices, all causes of, of brokenness is all rooted in pride. The turning in towards Himself. So as we stand together and read Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, I want us to remember that this is God's Word. And that as we read His Word, uh, that we are reading it with that in mind. That we are 
respecting the very words of our Father. Let's stand together. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy and leads to destruction. And those who enter by, the, by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Many, uh, many who have studied this text have said that this verse, verse 12, is the summary of all the Sermon on the Mount. I like that because you look at this idea of the golden rule, as people have called it. Do unto others as they would do unto you, as you would want them to do unto you. I want you to think of a couple things here because this immediately causes tension. The only way for you to get verse 12 is to back that thing up a little bit and to go into uh, Matthew 7 through 11, uh, 7 verses 7 through 11, where Pastor Wayne preached last week, where what he talked about is that we should ask and we should seek and we should knock because we have a father who is generous and will give us good gifts. But he spent a lot of his time last week, if you remember, Pastor Wayne was, was, he was, you need to go down. He was ripping it up. It was amazing. Because what he talked about in this text was how immediately we can feel the tension of that because many of us have asked things from God and he didn't give it to us. Right? But what he had to press into was this. If it says, ask, seek, and knock, and if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a scorpion. And if he asks for, you know, or a stone, if you ask for fish, he's not going to give you a snake. He's not going to give you bad gifts. The reverse of that is true, right? If you're asking for a scorpion, the Father's not going to give it to you. If you're asking for the snake, it's not like he's going, whatever you ask, that's what I'm giving to you, right? The reality of that test, of that text pushes into the relationship with the Father. Is that's, that's what Pastor Wayne talked about all week last week. Is the reality of the reason he wants us to ask is because the Father doesn't just want to give us stuff and be like a, a, a sugar daddy that just kind of pours out blessings upon us. What does he really want? He wants relationship with us. Even in the asking, it's come and ask and, 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 and he knows and he's going to give you what is good and trust in the generosity of the Father. And the reality is it doesn't just say that he's just going to whatever he says, when you ask for that which is good, he's going to give that to you. When you seek, when you knock, and you come after him, he's going to give that to you. The same is true in verse 12 because you immediately feel the tension. So whatever somebody asks for me to do for them, I should just do that for them, whatever they want, I should just do that for them? No, the same tension is true. That there are often times 
where they're going to ask for things that are not best for them. But here is the reality of this. Whatever is right. He says, whatever you would want done for yourself. That means whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is you want done for yourself, you need to do that for others. What this really pushes against is not you just giving money every time somebody asks and doing this 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 and you're trying to find the easy answer for this. What this really pushes into is our pride. Whatever you wish would happen to you, the way that you fight against this keen awareness that all of us have, that we're so turned into ourselves that all of us in this room know exactly what we want all the time. Right? And the only way that we can push against this is one, by starting at 11, seeing we have a good Father who has given us all that we need. I want, I want to just make that really clear. What does that mean? You're not lacking anything. Everything you need has come to you from the Father. He cares for you and He loves you and He's providing for you and He has given you all that you need. If this is true and we could see how good and generous the Father is, instead of us just reveling in this, this is where true understanding comes. When you see the gospel and you have this deep theology of a generous God, here's what happens. You become generous. Why? Verse 7 through 11 says you have a generous Father. Here's what true theology would say. Not just I can articulate that, but now I'm going to do that for others. Isn't it amazing how when we do something really wicked, um, the way we feel better about ourselves is that when somebody who loves us and cares for us comes to us and has to get over the fear of like confronting you and all the things of talking to you and comes and says, look, you're killing yourself, you're destroying your life, and, and you, here's, here's what you, don't live this way, don't go this way, and what do we do? We immediately flip it around and say, this is how you should have treated me. Why? Because we are keenly aware of how we want to be treated. Nobody has to train you on that. You know how you want to be treated. And here's what Scripture is showing us. That not only do we have a generous Father, but the way we fight this inward turning into ourselves and the way we walk on this path to life is not by turning in towards ourselves, but turning towards a generous Father and turning towards out. It's a radical reorientation from pride to God and others. So that awareness of how we would want to be treated, God says, here's how it's going to be used. You're going to force by the, that the gospel is going to push us into a place where we become like Christ, meaning we enter into somebody else's world and we do what is best for them rather than always doing what is best for ourselves. We care for others like we ourselves want to be cared for and are being cared for by a generous Father. What this does is pushes against our self-centeredness and makes us apply all that we have received from a generous Father by 
having his heart, that the true essence of our relationship with Christ is not deeply understanding all about who God is, but being transformed by that deep understanding and living out the implications of all that has been given to us in Christ through a generous Father, being his representation in this world. Here's the good news. It's not about you. That should free you up this morning. I wish I had an organ up in here. That's gospel right there. That could be the best news you could ever receive. It's not about you. I want to grab you by your cute, chubby cheeks and just say, it's bigger than ice cream, right? Freedom comes when you have a life where you stop focusing on what you feel you deserve and see all you've been given and spend your life giving it away to others. That's freedom. That's life. And immediately when we hear that, we start trying to figure out how to make that easier. That's hard. I love it. When you, when you start hearing the gospel being preached, people feel justification if they can say this one very deep line. That's hard. Meaning that because it's hard, it must not be God. That's why I think Jesus puts in verse 13 and 14 a very powerful statement Right after he says this reality of how the gospel turns us away from ourselves and towards a generous father and towards the world, he says this, look, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy, but it leads to destruction. And those who enter are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He goes, it is hard and most people won't find it and most people won't walk it. Because nobody has to be taught how to focus on themselves and live by pride. Everybody's going to do that. That's a wide gate. Anybody can live that way. All of you already are living that way. Including myself. That's default. I'm always going to think about myself. I'm always going to figure out what's best for me. I'm always looking out for number one. Interesting is I'm number one. Uh, thought that was supposed to be God, but not seek Him first, but maybe, maybe I'm number one. This reality of how pride so infects the way we live our lives, and when we think it's hard, we check ourselves out of it, but anyone can live by pride, and that's why it's said in this that this is a very narrow and hard gate. This is a very narrow and hard path and not very many people will walk this path. You're like, uh, so you're saying it's, it's narrow, it's hard, and it's unpopular. Yes. Oh. And I'm supposed to walk this, why? Because that leads to life. That's the path of life. Death to yourself and living for 
God, in trust in Him as Father, and living for others. That's the path to life. You see, anytime someone comes to me and says, Pastor, can we meet, uh, husband and wife, can we meet? I already start going, oh man, here we go. Because by the time they call me in to meet, they're already contemplating divorce, right? They're already wondering, hey, could you just say, you guys are not good for each other, right? At that point, they're sitting down, and the whole time, for the first hours, and it could go on longer, there's many things that are going this way, and every one of them is the man, uh, the husband, talking about the wife. She doesn't do this, she doesn't go here, and she doesn't do this anymore, and she doesn't walk this way, and she said this, and now she's doing this, and she could just do this, and she'd start doing this, and she's not with me anymore, and now she's not making love to me anymore, and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and here's what I've learned about husbands. They would make the best wives in every relationship. <laughs> Why? Because they give their wives classes on how to be a wife, right? And then, without skipping a beat, necks start rolling and weaves start coming off and, and the whole thing going. Now, now he doesn't do this. And he's not around anymore. And he doesn't care for the kids and he doesn't do this for me. He doesn't give me, he doesn't buy me flowers. He doesn't watch, we don't watch TV. Blah, 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 blah. And at this point, what the marriage is wanting from me is for me to go, listen, man, here's checklist of what you to do. Girl, here's the checklist of what you to do. Boom, fixed. Now go be happily married. And the reality is, is once it's gotten to that point where all these things that are being fighted over is that I feel like I'm sitting there going, it's not about the ice cream. The brokenness in your marriage is that you're spending so much time knowing how you should be treated and not investing the same, the, the full amount of your energy figuring out how they should be treated. And that if both inside of that could go, no, I know you know what you think you need. But the gospel would compel you to say, what does it look like for me to give to them. What would a marriage look like if both were trying to outgive each other? Pride is the problem. And we want an easy fix. We want a checklist of rules. The last thing is this. What do you, what do, you do with with it, when it comes to the point of going, my family's broken, my church is broken, and everybody's been ingrained with this reality of how do I pick a church and how do I fix my family? And every one of us, even in the way we pick communities and churches, are so consumed with, I'm going to go to a church where everybody looks like me, they have the ministries I need, and single adults and young adults and old adults and baby adults and all these people just around. Everybody gets their own class, and let's only get around people who look like us and believe like us and vote like us and live like us, and then you you get into a community and then we go why is there so much division in the church because everybody's doing what they want best for themselves 
rather than going to a community where everybody's different and diverse and, and, and walks in ways that you wouldn't even think and you have to learn to love and serve and care for people who are different and reconcili- only, recon- reconciliation only happens in those places where we are living for God and others rather than trying to surround ourselves with people who just look like us, sound like us. You see, no one No one needs to be told how to walk by pride. That's default. Nobody needs to focus. Nobody needs to be taught how to focus on themselves. You're doing it too much. The realities of this is that we live in this way of being called by God to a very narrow, hard path if you know anything about a narrow and hard path is there's not clear instructions Uh, something about academic kind of realities is that you try to take deep theological relational things and you try to make them understandable and get direction so you try to get this place to where I preach this sermon and then I get it down to five points to live for the other point one point two point three point four point five and you go okay now I got directions and if you if you get in in this Phoenix you know we've got like a real great one to five thousand this way and one to five thousand this way on streets and avenues and you got central and you got grand that messes everything up right you got a very clear grid, and so with paved roads and wide open paths, you just say this, go to this street, turn this way, go to that road, turn this way, and people can get there with just easy directions. Why? Because it's wide, easy, open paths. But when it comes to narrow, hard paths, you go, uh... Well, you kind of go down this way and then it kind of veers this way and there's like a tree that kind of goes that way. And you're going, I've never been there before. I I have no clue what you're talking about. And this, this picture of the kinds of things that you're wanting from me is this, give me directions on how to live this way. And the reason why I'm struggling is because I can't give directions for a path that's narrow and bumpy and hard to navigate. What you need when you're on paths like that is the person who's trying to say, turn this way and that rock go this way, is you go, hey, could you just go with me and I'll follow? You've been on this road before. You know the way that it needs to go. And that is far more like what God is calling us into, that there is one who has walked perfectly on this path of living for the other. That there is one who has given of himself and died all of himself, given and emptied his blood and given his body, and he has lived a life that has lived completely self-sacrificial, living for his father and for his family, and living in such a way that he has walked that narrow and hard and broken path. And he doesn't say, let me give you directions. He knows the only way you're going to walk on that is if you follow him. And if you build relationship with Him. And if you cling to Him. And if you ask Him for help. And if you walk this path, you're like, how do I live for others? Tell me, what do I do? How do I forgive? 
You need a tour guide. I mean, you need Jesus. You need to cling to him. You need to drink deeply of his blood and eat of his body and sup with him. You need to be close and near and in relationship with Christ. And that's the essence of what it means to be in a family. The ones who lose themselves on this path are the ones who think they understand it. And then once they get onto the hard path, they're going, none of what I learned up here is actually working down here. Why? Because it wasn't about just kind of figuring out the roadmap before you go. It was about being in relationship with Christ and following the one who has perfectly walked it, knowing that we couldn't do it without him. You want to live for God and for others, you have to keep so close to Christ. That's why when you come to this table, I pray that you come hungry and thirsting for him. I pray that you come and you're, many of you are wrestling with, what do I do for this person? How do I help them? How do I help fix this marriage, this relationship? How do I help engage in the world around them with all the tension and politics? How do I, how do I engage at work with all the problems that are there? Why is, my, my, why is this relationship on? How do I walk in patience? What am I doing here? How do I walk? And you just want a map rather than Jesus. You just want instructions rather than a relationship. And he's saying, come to me. Cling to me. Let me, let me show you what I have done. Let me show you how we should live. And you're like, but that's hard. Yeah. But there's life. There's joy. That the road to life is hard. It is bumpy. It is painful. It's not clear. It's not wide open. But you have Christ. So as we come, come hungry and thirsty for Him. Come asking, seeking, knocking. And come rejecting the very pride in you that wants to live for yourself. Reject that very inward turning of sin on yourself and say, God, I want to live for you. I want to live for others and I want to walk on this path for life church the tables are open come sup with him this podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix Arizona for more information about Redemption Alhambra Village visit redemptionaz.com 